it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And this week, something a little different, on-premise data, as I speak with James Phillips, Client Solutions Director at CGA by Nielsen IQ. One of the challenges we have covering the brewing industry is the lack of meaningful industry and consumer data available. And the data that is often available tends to be lagging indicators, which really amounts to navigating the future by looking in the rearview mirror of the brewing industry. I've been watching the on-premise consumer pulse reports that CGA by Nielsen have been releasing as they increase their focus on this region, and they've provided some really interesting and very timely insights on consumer behaviour in the on-premise sector. I was interested in finding out a little bit more, and so I thought it would be a good conversation for this podcast to share with you, so I recorded it. As you'll hear, James's insights provide a little bit more meat than many of the news headline-driven data releases that you see reported in the brewing industry trade media, and I really appreciate the insights that James was willing to add as part of this conversation. James Phillips, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, I guess the first question that anyone that tunes into a podcast, and they probably you know, you're not a household name in the brewing world. Tell us a little bit about who is James Phillips. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm the uh, Client Solutions Director for uh, CGA by Nielsen IQ here in um, Sydney. And I look after the, the total ANZ um, region for, for the business. We're a, a niche data and insights consulting business for, for the on-premise. So um, we look at... Um, both consumer insights and measuring uh, the on-premise, and and provide try and provide a lot of value for for drink suppliers and operators with with the data and information that we provide. So, what's your background? Because I know that you've uh, spent a little bit of time in the drinks industry yourself, so you it, it's something that you are very familiar with, and you've also spent a bit of time in fast-moving consumer goods, which is another allied uh, industry. Yeah, sure. Like I guess similar to our chat before about our, the start of our journeys, I actually probably never thought I'd go into this kind of space, but I started studying finance at university and thought I'd be a stockbroker and actually ended up somehow in sales and marketing roles in FMCG businesses. Um, but no, I first originally started in um, in the media space, doing media planning and buying and, and worked on clients like Procter & Gamble that really gave me a taste for the FMCG side of the world. Um, and my skill set, you know, I love data and facts and things like that. And probably a bit of a nerd, love doing the weekend quiz here as well. Um, and that sort of led me into, okay, what's a great role for me? And, and FMCG uh, gave me that opportunity in, in category roles. And if you ask anyone to explain what a category role is to, um, to sort of a layman or anyone else out there or someone at the pub, it's a very difficult thing to do, but uh, essentially they they use data and insights to to build plans for for FMCG companies. Um, and so I spent a bit of time at Unilever there, working on categories like deodorants and ice cream, and got to launch brands like uh, Gay Time Crumbs into Coles, which was really interesting. And um, the innovation that comes through ice cream is probably one of the most exciting things about. That category and then I, I moved over to the drinks side of things and spent four and a half years at Moet Hennessy um, in sort of sales roles looking after the big national chains like uh, Dan Murphy's and, and Coles Liquor Group and then in category and insights roles and and that kind of led me to um, to CGA which um, as I said before is sort of that niche um, on-premise data and insights and I guess that sort of background of you know, working in um, in those kind of FMCG businesses and drinks businesses and data and insights and that sort of passion for it has sort of set me up well for, for you know, moving into this role and providing that information to, to our clients. One of the things that we've noticed and often decried at Brews News is the challenge in getting meaningful data, um, you know, about the industry, the size of the industry, 
um, where it's going. Is that a fair assessment? You know, is there a lack of data in Australia compared to maybe other jurisdictions like America where there seems to be much more transparent business reporting? Yeah, I think it varies by market to market. I think um, there has been a lot of changes in Australia recently that's made it more difficult um, and more challenging to, to access that data. I think there's always a, a, a limitation on what people can get from a, you know, a budget perspective. But from a coverage perspective, um, on-premise, the industry that sort of I and the channel that I sort of look at mainly has really um, never had a great amount of data from, from a measurement side of things. And when I say measurement, that's you know, measuring sales through, I guess, through the till and on checks um, in, in on-premise venues um, to understand, I guess, what the trends are across categories um, and then what's happening am- among segments um, in the on-premise to really be able to, to understand what's going on. And then for the people out there that are doing, you know, consumer insights where they're looking at surveys or interviews, that's always been really, I guess, expensive to access, inconsistent, mm. and maybe not as timely as as um, as people need. I do remember one time, you know, having presented, some, having someone present me some on-premise data that was sort of ten years old, and trying to make the the link to say, this is what's happening right now in a certain category, um, which you know, in in the the world of of something like beer and and craft beer you know the types of trends that you see shift um you know six to 12 months and very quickly um and then you've also got new categories that are kind of built overnight like hard seltzer or something like that so to stay on the pulse of those kind of things um, and then you have you, global pandemics that yep uh, on, on on top of those business cycles you get extraordinary events that you know fundamentally change uh, whole industries and that changes, you know, the way consumers behave and interact and and their journey in, in the on-premise as well. And that's what I think has been the biggest disruption of the pandemic is now how people, you know, go through from booking right through to paying mm. in the digital space in the on-premise. And that's been something that um, we've seen a massive acceleration in, in terms of the use of in-venue menu ordering apps and, you know, the likes of Mr. Yum and, and me and you. Um, for how people consume in the on-premise. So that massive shift, you, you need to be able to understand that. Um, and we even have the capabilities to, you know, look at eye-tracking studies to understand how people change their their path to purchase, which is super interesting. Um, I went out to Bankstown Sports here in Sydney, which is a very interesting Vegas uh, venue, like a mini Vegas, to be honest, um, and saw some of that technology. So, yeah, like understanding all that change, um, is is super interesting, but it's got to be it's got to be timely as well. Yeah, clearly, um, and, and we're going to be talking about your on premise, the Australian on premise consumer pulse report, which really stood out to me as having some very interesting insights that I wanted to discuss. But this is the tip of the ice. This is almost the um, tease about what people can buy from you, isn't it? So yeah. uh, we're, you're not going to give it all away, um, but you are sort of going to talk to us about some of the things that uh, you've been able to glean. Yeah, look, it's it's a very broad look at consumers, right? So there's only so much you can learn about total Australians. And if you're a, you know, a craft brewer or a micro brewer, right, like, your consumer isn't necessarily every single person in Australia. It's more likely to be, you know, that sort of local community. And how can you understand more about their taste to, to unpack that? Or even sort of at a state level, and we know beer is so uh, parochial. You've got to really understand those types of consumers. So yeah, like there's good insights in there, but I would just caveat it that they're, they're very broad still. Um, and, you know, for us, it's about kind of unpacking those further with clients and and understanding them more. So maybe start by telling us what the Australian on-premise compute, consumer pulse report is. We could just call it the pulse report or the consumer pulse report. And what's the yep. shorthand reference for that? Uh, pulse report's a pulse good report, way to okay. do it. Yeah. Well, essentially for us, it's it's a bit of a temperature check for, for what's happening in, in Australian on-premise. So we look at um, metrics around visitation, intentions to, to visit in the future as well. Um, people's confidence, why why are they visiting less or more in terms of frequency to really understand, you know, the state of what's happening in the on-premise month to month. 
Um, we started it back at the beginning of this year. And I think with the, the kind of changes we've had since the pandemic and a lot of venues being closed and the on-premise gearing back up um, to kind of reopen to sort of normal levels, it's been a really good benchmark for, for how the on-premise is sort of returning back to life in Australia. So that's the kind of main part of it. We also have been sort of delving into some hot topics um, by looking at what consumers are saying about certain topics across the year in, 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 in different months. And we, we have a series on path to purchase and that whole sort of digital um, ordering side of things. But the last one, we, we looked at innovation and exploration. And I think that's super interesting in the on-premise because it's a place mm. where people like to, to really trial and experiment with new things as well. I desperately want to dive into some of those. Where do you get your data from? How do you get the, the, the data for these insights and in order to make it so in the moment um, as you've tried to with this? Yeah, look, we run a series of surveys um, to get the information for for the, the Pulse report. So we, we run it monthly. We look at a um, nationally representative sample of, of Australia by looking at quotas for, for state, um, so the region they're in, the age as well, um, but and gender as well. But we don't look at things like um, income brackets or anything like that. It just becomes a bit too hard to kind of access those sort of really um, wealthy people at times. But it gives us a really good sense of, you know, the legal drinking age consumer in Australia, and we run that survey monthly. But we do have a number of other data sources that we work with um, to get insight into the on-premise as well. Um, we're looking in and as part of our journey actually here in Australia is what we do is we go out and acquire POS data, so point of sale data from providers, whoever it is, or, or venue groups that are willing to share that information to be able to create this pool of sales data. And that's where I talked about earlier, the sort of measurement side of things is that's what really a lot of suppliers want to understand. They want to understand what is their share of trade in the on-premise. And so having that sales data allows us to, to kind of project that for them and they can sort of track then, you know, either new product launches or existing products, how they're performing in the market as well. So we do a combination of consumer insights, which is the survey side of things and acquiring that data um, as well to kind of look at actual sales data. And then on top of that, we do other methods of, of you know, acquiring information like um, we do uh, bartender studies as well. So we go out and ask bartenders, what are the kind of things they're seeing in the in the trade as well? So a lot of qualitative stuff around that. I mentioned before, we do things like eye tracking research. So we do some like custom research as well, um, working with suppliers that can can sort of generate a lot of really interesting insights as well. Maybe you can tell us, you know, what, what, what were the broad trends uh, that, that, that you took away or what, what were the, the really broad things? Was there anything specifically as we you know, have the first six months out of COVID restrictions, that are there lasting effects? Are people returning? You know, what, what did you uh, learn about COVID? Yeah, look, I, you know, I think the, the, the overall view at the moment is that the recovery has been pretty strong. But I guess what we've been hearing from our supply friends is it hasn't been as strong as they would have liked it to have been or as big as they thought it would be. And now, you know, that could be for a number of reasons. And, you know, my assumptions are that it's probably being held back by um, just the ability of, of operators to be able to meet that demand. You know, like uh, I think recently AVC, you know, big pub group here in, in Australia came out and had their great pub casting call where they, they basically did a week of um, trying to get new people and new staff into their venues where they're offering, I think it was a free pub lunch, a job on the spot, mm. um, training, and then also uh, $1,000 credit at, at the, the bar as well. I, I thought, well, if I was 18 and had that opportunity, I'd be laughing, you know. So staff staffing challenges, we can see it right across Australia as well. It's, it's a real challenge. And so uh, there is that underlying demand there. And people's, people's responses in our surveys as well say they're looking to go out more in the future as well. Um, it's just a matter of can the, can the market meet that demand um, and therefore will we have, you know, sort of an epic summer 
in terms of the on-premise with people getting back out there and enjoying it that we haven't sort of seen in the last couple of years with lockdowns and, and hesitations of, of, you know, people being concerned about um, the confidence of going back into the on-premise around, you know, health and hygiene as well. So, you know, that that's the overall what we're seeing um, in terms of visitation and, um, you know, sort of intentions to go back out as well. You just said that, it had come back, but not quite as strongly as some people were hoping and leading of summer. Just looking at the Pulse report, I noticed that 30% of respondents said they were going out more often, but that was offset by 29% saying they were going out less often. Um, yeah. So were the people going out more often going out much more often to offset the people who were going out less often? Or were, were there any insights around that? To be honest, there's always that sort of churn of people going out more or less within the period that we look at. Okay. So you, you almost want to look at the net change in that, and the net change would therefore be a positive 1% um, for people going out more often. So we are seeing these really uh, strong gains across the year in terms of what we'd call penetration growth of, of consumers going back out into the on-premise. But then a layer down from that, it gets more nuanced, right, in terms of the frequency and, and the level of spend as well that people are, are, are spending in the on-premise. Um, so frequency is an interesting one. We're actually seeing um, almost sort of two ends of the market where there's people with a lot of money to spend who are going out more frequently, but then there's also a lot of people who are concerned and probably going less frequently. And we're seeing, although more penetration overall, um, the other side is that overall in a net perspective as well, frequency has been been down. But within that context as well, and we've got a big survey that comes out twice a year, we've seen this massive shift in terms of increase in spend. And obviously you want to look at the real change as well. So inflation's been um, a pretty massive topic of conversation across the economy um, for the last couple of months. Um, but once you sort of take out that sort of inflation growth um, you know, I think it's roughly at 6.1% across the board in Australia. We're still seeing growth in how much people are spending on their average visit out into the on-premise. So maybe they're going out less frequently. There's more people out there though, and they're also spending more. And a lot of the insight around this comes back to the on-premise is a place where people love to treat themselves. Um, and so, so people are therefore, you know, willing to spend a bit more for that kind of affordable luxury of going into the on-premise. Um, we do a massive um, global survey called REACH here at um, CGA as well. And we look at uh, 24,000 consumers across the world to kind of understand what the global trends are. And when we ask them about discretionary spending, so you know, looking at things like, are you gonna continue to spend it in the on-premise on eating and drinking out? Are you gonna buy a new TV? Are you gonna spend it on home improvement and renovations? the number one thing that people say they're going to prioritise in terms of spend is going into the on-premise and and um, consuming in the on-premise. Um, because it's also, you know, a, a sort of an area where you can go out and celebrate with friends and family, have those social occasions. There is that prioritisation of, of spend in that way. Um, and so that's where we're seeing people maybe spending more in Australia as well in that they're going, um, you know, I don't need to buy a second you know, flat screen TV from JB Hi-Fi. I've got that. I bought enough of those in the pandemic. I did all my home improvements. <laughs> um, I just want to go see friends now and maybe spend a little bit more to kind of enjoy that experience as well. I, I was struck that the reasons for going out uh, more frequently than usual, the number one reason was I've been treating myself. And that was 43% of respondents said that was why they were going out more. But amongst those who were going out less frequency, um, the top response was the cost of living increases, and that was 69%. So that was a big, um, a, you know, a big driver for people going out less. But then even, um, I think it's about the 10th uh, reason with 17% amongst those who said they were going out more, I'm visiting while I have enough disposable income, which kind of is in a positive category, but it's also a very negative future sentiment. Do you think those two are cost of living increases and people expecting it to get worse are going to shade the, 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 the next three to six months? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question. And a lot of our clients ask exactly the same question. They go, when, when are people going to stop spending in the on-premise? 
and we really like to deal in you know facts and the the data we've got so forecasting's always a bit a bit tricky but you know in the short run i'm very bullish on on the sort of the ongoing spending and consumption in in the on-premise and some really interesting data started to come out about retail spending recently where in the face of you know multiple interest rate increases i think the last retail spending data that came out said that spending in restaurants cafes bars has been one of the sort of glimmering signs of continued growth within that whereas other categories people are sort of saying no i won't spend as much so there is that kind of element of people being more concerned and watching watching their um, kind of spend in in general and, and might be a reason why they might not go out. Um, but we see it happening in, in, as I said before, and people going out less frequently rather than maybe spending less. And also we're seeing a lot more people going out than before as well. So I think for for drinks, drink suppliers and, um, you know, brewers as well and stuff like that, there is that kind of hopeful side of looking forward into into the rest of 2022 around that. Um, but what what I can't predict is what's going to happen sort of next year. Are we going to continue to see disruption globally in, in the economy? Are we going to continue to see you know really big inflation across the board? Um, I'm unsure. So mm. you know I, I'd say you know very bullish for the short term. I think we're going to have a really cracking summer. Um, but then, you know, people might really, really kind of look to, to tighten their belts um, into next year if it continues. It, it's been 30 years since, and, and I'm mindful that I'm speaking to someone, speaking to someone who was uh, Four. probably... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yes, um, I, it was 30 years that we had interest rates of 17%, the Keating recession that we had to have, and a lot of our listeners would be in the same position. They wouldn't remember that. Um but there were some case studies around the time that said, you know, I think it was Magnum was the ice cream that was launched into the recession. And it was, and it sort of did very well because it was the affordable luxury, you know, when people could barely afford to pay their mortgages, but they still want to treat themselves. Do you think um, on-premise spend and ex- that sort of experience that sort of special experience you can have in a good on-premise environment still has that cachet as the affordable luxury or the affordable experience maybe we won't go for a weekend away or things like that but we can still go out and have a night and really treat ourselves um that way is is that is there anything to support that uh, in the current in, in economic situation? Yeah, I, sh- I should know that history behind uh, Magnums as well, considering having worked on on Magnum at, at Unilever. <laughs> I don't. Uh, again, I, Magnum <laughs> is one of the lux, you know, the, the luxury ice creams that I remember. So don't quote me on that, but I remember it was uh, something in, in that category. Yeah. Yeah. Look, you know, that's a really good question. I think. Um, yeah, it's tough to see, but yeah, you know, as I said to the data that we have before, like even spending on domestic and international travel across the world, people were saying they'd prioritize that eating and drinking. So like in what shape and form it comes, I'm not sure, but you know, it's good it's good from from our perspective to see that people will prioritize that. And I, I definitely do think it is the affordable affordable luxury in um, in Australia as well, being able to go out for for a nice dinner or or beer or go out to celebrate maybe a special occasion, and that's the other thing that we see come through is people sort of saying why they go out to the on premise or why they've been going back out into the on premise in the since the pandemic, is to kind of celebrate those special occasions. Um, some really interesting data where we've got longer sales data in in the UK and a longer history of sales data was during the global financial crisis in the UK, there was some premium brands that performed really well and actually built themselves during that time as well. So two examples we have was one was Hendrix, um, the gin, um, where they almost built that sort of premium gin within that period where people were sort of prioritizing different kinds of consumption or reducing consumption overall. Um, And the other one was Peroni, where it really um, was able to increase their market share and get a really good um, foothold in the UK through that premium positioning as well. So, you know, it's, it's really up to, I guess, on how you win when there's more competition or less spend. So you've got 
you know, a market where maybe consumers are spending less, but you've got suppliers out there all trying to compete and the competition gets fiercer. The ones that win are really clear on their strategy and their approach. And that's where value brands can really win. So value brands that are maybe saying, well, we'll, we'll continue to provide a cheap product even in the face of inflation. Maybe we won't pass through price increases um, and maybe we can provide you with something that brings you a lot of great value. Or the other side is the ones that look to kind of create that aspirational trade-up. So you almost see this, this move to two like different sides of the market and data we have from our US business says that in in the spirits business over there, they're actually seeing this move away from the middle and away from the mid brands where people are going, I'll either trade up because I can afford that luxury or I'll trade down because I'm actually, you know, experiencing financial difficulties to continue to consume in that kind of way. So that's where we see this kind of, um, you know, split and divergence. And therefore, brands have to be really clear on their strategy. And it goes back to kind of traditional marketing strategy, right? Do you want to be a cost or a quality um, brand? And, and therefore, you know, both can win. But it's, um, it's a really interesting time. And I think um, point in time for, for brands and what, what they're going to do and how they're going to perform. Do you think something like craft beer can be seen, you know, position itself as the affordable luxury, whereas, you know, maybe people will try trade down from a less expensive wine because a $30 bottle of wine can taste as good as a $15 bottle of wine, but that people might treat themselves with, you know, something like craft beer or premium beer? I certainly know I do. Like I'll spend $15 on a, on a schooner of craft beer, which, you know, thinking about that sort of a couple of years ago would, would be sound very expensive, right? Yeah. Um, but actually, what we're noticing is a lot of growth in cocktails and spirits, and you'll see that in the kind of pulses we release as well. I think there's been um, more of a preference towards that. And that comes back down to, I guess, what people actually, um, what we see is the reason people make decisions around um, different kinds of drinks is is from the quality and the value they get from it rather than the price itself. Um, and that's a really difficult concept to kind of unpack because people sometimes say price is value, but in consumers' eyes, it's not. Uh, and so, and therefore, you know, cocktails, maybe their prices haven't gone up as much. And the relative price of a $15 schooner to trading up to a cocktail or a margarita where maybe you're getting, you know, instead of one single drink or 1.5 standard drinks, you're getting two, two and a half standard drinks. Mm. The value step up is not as, as significant as maybe it once was. And and people in the sort of, um, people who are willing to experiment with cocktails can get a lot more value from that experience, um, from the taste and the flavor and beer, I think, is going to have a real difficult challenge to be seen as an affordable luxury if your competition gives you a greater experience. Um, if the perfect serve that they give you in a cocktail is something you can post on social media to your friends, having a, a pint or a schooner that you post on Instagram or on TikTok or whatever your social media of choice is this day, these days is a lot less attractive to post than say, you know, a great cocktail you've been served by a bartender who's done some theater around it, right? So that's where I see the value piece of, you know, can beer be an affordable luxury being very difficult um, in terms of competition from, from things like spirits and cocktails as well. Although I was, um, when I saw people going out more frequently, I want to support local businesses. I guess that's something that craft breweries can play into is that, you know, that little bit of extra, the experience of drinking in the shadow of the tanks is one, but then also that feeling of supporting local and we're all in this together. Yeah. Localization's massive in beer, right? Like you being a Queensland or at least living in Queensland, probably a Moraine supporter, you know, you know, 4X up there, it's massive, right? Like, and it's it's that that kind of local beer pride um, that that we see a lot in in beer and in the drink space as well. So, for for beers to kind of dial up that as well, I think super important because your consumers, as we talked about before, aren't necessarily total Australian consumers. They could be, 
you know, your suburbs consumers or your suburbs or your postcodes consumers, right? And understanding them is really important versus understanding a broad consumer. So yeah, I think playing up on those kind of local credentials and we see it across the board in, in Australia, beer, wine and spirits as well. It's not just beer. We also see it in, you know, people in South Australia basically only drink South Australian wines. They hate hate like champagne where I used to work at Moat Hennessy. We'd see a massive under trade in champagne in, in South Australia because why pay 50 plus dollars for a bottle of champagne in the off trade when you can buy a great bottle of, you know, South Australian sparkling for a quarter of the price. So there is that sense of pride, um, which I think brands can play up to more and providing that local experience as well, which if we think about what I think beer companies can do in terms of creating a better experience for consumers is that brewery side of things that maybe, you know, on-premise cocktails or spirits might not be able to do as, as well. And that community feel and that, you know, that community um, aspect of, of local craft brewers, I think is, is super important. Actually, just stepping back a page in, in the report, one of the things that fascinated me was over the last February to September, the, the increase of people who have gone out to eat it has increased from 81% to 91%, whilst the number who have reported going out to drink in the last uh, month is relatively constant uh, um, 48, 44%. Um, do you have any idea how long that's been the case? That surprises me. Again, going back a generation, I would have thought that far fewer people would have gone out for a, uh, a meal than gone out for a drink, and yet twice as many people are reporting they're going out for a meal as a, you know, the, the, the concept of going to the pub. Yeah, I think um, yeah, that's, that's one where we don't have data back from further than February, and it'd be really interesting to know, you know, back in 2019 was at similar levels, but yeah, we, we really do see a change um, across the world, even in food-led occasions being the real driver of increase in frequency. And the latest Pulse report also shows that in that actually we're seeing less frequency in the drinking occasions and more frequency in the, the food-led occasions. Um, and look, there might be a number of macro themes that are kind of kind of lending to that. But one one big one, obviously, that a lot of people talk about is kind of health and well-being and moderation in general, right? So I think that's one aspect of it. I think also there's probably been a rise of sort of the, um, across the pandemic, sort of a rise of the sort of casual um, suburban um, venue to go out and have dinner at. And maybe that's the occasion where you don't drink as much and you have a casual meal. Um, and so, yeah, look, I think there's a lot of a lot of factors that could come out here. But yes, we are we are sort of seeing that that kind of um, difference in sort of the overall performance of people going back out and visiting the on-premise as well. Digging a little deeper into it, one of the things that I found really fascinating about on-premise, and uh, there was an insight from New Zealand and an insight from Australia, and one is three in five Australian consumers are likely to trial new drink brands in the on-premise space, and in New Zealand, that was nearly two-thirds. Um, so it's fairly consistent, but it's a, a, a very, very substantial number of consumers aren't going into their bottle shop to try something new. If you want to get them to try something, it's you know in the bar or you know on-premise. On yeah, it's a really interesting balance in Australia because you know roughly sort of seventy percent of sales actually go through the off-trade and not through the on-premise. But what what consumers do have in the on-premise is a much deeper and richer experience with with um, drinks, right? So if you think about whether you go to a brewery or you go to a restaurant and the people you're with, you know, trying something new and taking that risk is, you know, um, in terms of, you know, experimenting is a lot easier to go out and buy, you know, one cocktail. And then if it's a good cocktail, you go, wow, what a great experience I had with my my friends and family or trying a great craft beer. You know, that experience you take not only from um, from what you experience in the on-premise to purchase again in the on-premise, you go, I think it's, um, you know, something like, 62% or something of consumers would say they would retry it if, if they enjoyed the, the drink in the on-premise. But it's actually, we see the flow of people who, who really enjoy that experience going back into the off-trade and trying to produce that experience for themselves at home. Um, so, you know, I've got a lot of friends and family that go, oh, I went to this winery, I went to this brewery, I tried this beer, we've got to get it. You know, we've got to have it for this, this occasion. 
and I think that's a truism in that we're actually seeing come 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 through our data as well that um, it's super important for for brands to have a presence in the on-premise as well and if you're launching NPD um, or innovation NPD is probably a, a, a more of a trade term around um, you know new products but if you're launching new products you know finding those consumers where they're willing and open to experiment is is really important and getting that trial from them to be able to win with the brand overall um, because of the rich experiences they have, the ability to build that brand equity with them as well in the on-premise. So, you know, we always love to talk about this because it really shows the overweight benefits of, um, of um, driving an on-premise strategy for a brand. And what do you think leads to that? Is it it's a much lower risk to trial something on premise because you can buy you know a, a beer from a tap or you can even sample it beforehand, but you can have that experience. Whereas you know you have to buy four or a six pack generally, um, it's a bit more of a commitment. Or is it on premise is a ripe place where people are just minded to have a bit more of an experience, and so they're open to new experiences while they're there. I think it's twofold. I think it's both of those things, actually. So it's one, the risk is the overall risk is reduced, maybe unless you're buying a, a bottle of Dom Perignon, where it's probably pretty expensive to go do <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> so people probably are in, in general are a bit more hesitant to do that, but I guess Dom Perignon has the brand credibility to be able to to you know maybe lift that experience anyway um yeah so i think they're you know for an everyday drink or like maybe you're buying a a, a craft beer yeah the risk is reduced right you're not buying a these days like a hundred dollar case in in the off trade of craft beer um but then also i think the environment and the experience you get the people you're with can make that experience much stronger in terms of the positive sentiment that you get from it and therefore, I think that has a lot of influence then on on what um, you're willing to sort of purchase and 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 prefer and and that loyalty advocacy piece moving forward. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of both of those. It's interesting. This may be a little bit out of your um, wheelhouse, but particularly for for brewers, but I think anybody, uh, any business that's trying to establish itself, then the ability for the larger brewers or the larger um, spirits uh, makers to essentially lock out, you know, that they they do commercial deals, whether it's a a tap contract where they take the vast majority of taps, that would then seem to have almost a double whammy for small producers because they're not getting the volume through those taps, but then also it's harder for them to get that traction in the market because they're not able to get those consumers to trial them the way that they would elsewhere. Yeah, look, that's that's a really tough challenge, I think, for, for small producers in Australia, for sure. Um, you know, that ability to win the distribution um, with those big venue groups or with, you know, any venue can really um, be sort of um, a make or break scenario for your brand. So half of it is just the physical availability. And this was a really great marketing concept that we would talk about all the time when I was in Unilever, is that you not only need the mental availability, so in the on-premise, that's the openness to be able to try and experiment with new things. It's also the physical availability. And if the small craft brewers can't get the taps or they can't get on even the craft brew tap because that's now one of the biggest suppliers, then yeah, that's going to be difficult for them. The one thing I would say is that the trendier restaurants and the trendier bars, they're looking for something different. And that's really the opportunity, I think, for for those kind of beers um, and those brewers to really make their name for themselves. And we also talked before about the localization piece, you know, who can do that better than the local craft brewery that that maybe is in your suburb as well. So you see a lot of local strategies coming from from craft brewers as well, where they really make it all about their city or their town as well. Um, and then they start small and kind of try to expand that way as well. I was I was listening to your um, your uh, podcast the other day with was it Johnny Day from um, Capital yeah, Brewing? Capital, yep. Yeah. I'm a Canberran myself, and so you know, I've got a, a soft spot in my heart for for Capital Brewing as well. So, um, you know, like, and that's that's it, right? So, you know, I think they're really building, and, and he talked about they're really focused on the ACT in New South Wales, right? Because 
that's where they're going to get the most traction. So I'd say that as well, you know, finding their niche and, and it is a niche until they can get scale and that mental availability from a, oh yeah, I know that brand, I've tried it, it's worth trying, you know, but it could be hard for them to break through into maybe some of the more mainstream kind of venues. And that's one thing that I didn't talk to you about before in terms of our products is that we actually do a whole database of uh, venues across Australia to help with those um, those companies and how they target different types of venues. So we go and give them a, a full list for their sort of sales strategies to be able to go, I want to target pubs or clubs in New South Wales. And we go, here. here's all the lists, put it into your database, and you can work with that on how you can drive your targeting. And we also do things like custom segmentation. So if maybe they wanted to understand which of all those venues had a craft tag on it, we go and scrape the internet and do audits to figure out what the craft segment looks like and then they can take that information and then go hey let's just target craft pubs where maybe the big guys are having a, a difficult opportunity getting in there because they don't have stuff that's maybe as interesting or really innovative that that could be coming out from from the craft guys so you know it is a challenge but then it goes back to strategy again if they want to really succeed this is another thing that stood out to me. Strength of beer that consumers have drunk in the past month. Full strength beer, which is 4.5% and above, um, 64% of consumers. Now, the PP and the plus 5 PP, is that that's... Percentage points. So percentage some people points. call it Okay, pips. so it's up yeah. 5. Yep, so, yep. so up 5 uh, percent over the uh, monthly average. Whereas mid-strength beer, 35 to 4.5%. Uh, was down 7%. Um, non-alcoholic beer, 13% said that they'd had non-alcoholic beer, which is under 3%, so not strictly non-alcoholic mm. beer. Um, but 13%, uh, and that was equal. So no growth um, over the monthly average um, for the past month. But uh, mid-strength had fallen. Do you think uh, people were drinking to sort of hide their uh, you know fears or you know cover their fears? Or what was what was the the increase in um, full-strength beer consumption over mid-strength? Yeah, like it's a really good question. I, I, I can't explain that one, to be honest. The one thing I would say is um, we are actually moving forward going to break out that uh, lower ABV um, section of the, the beers. So, so you'll start to see light, which is a really unique thing for Australia, actually, because you go to the US and light means low carb. Yep. So, you know, your Bud Lights and all that kind of stuff. And us being a, a UK business with a big US business as well, the light beer is something that as a, as a local Australian, I'm really trying to educate our business on what that could mean as well. And um, actually what we see when we go down to that portion of the market in the on-premise no low beer so i'd say below like one percent it's mm. it's a tiny proportion and actually the majority of that segment is made up of light beer so people are drinking light beer probably about the same um and then the mid-strength and the um and the full strength beer i can't really explain or put my finger on what what exactly is happening there um and something i'd probably have to go away and, and look further into I'd be interested if it was that impact of value because as much as we would probably like to not see it the case, but higher alcohol content is more bang for your buck. You know, we, we, we yeah. want to be encouraging people to drink for uh, for flavor, not effect. But uh, you, you do wonder if it is that. Now, you know, the other thing is there's so many um, mid-strengths up in Queensland. Maybe there was something going on in Queensland that month and the mid-strengths all, all dropped off. But, um, but you know, we do have some some massive mid-strength or session ABVs, you know, sort of coming through in Australia. And in, I think, the past couple of years, there's been a lot of growth in that area with brands like Great Northern, for instance. But you, what I see a lot of is craft brewers bringing out sort of a sessionable lager or a sessional ale, right? That seems to be a, a segment that they all want to sort of get into as well. And again, Australia, it's one of the things that fascinates me when you see a business like Budweiser said that, I think six years ago, 20% or 25% of they of their products they wanted to have in the no-low category, um, holding up Australia as an example. But we're unique in the world in having a, such a strong, you know, three to three and a half percent mid-strength category because of our drink driving laws and our excise laws. 
most countries have full strength and then nothing. Does your data reflect that globally or? Yeah, so we do look into that that no low space and actually some data from the US recently for us actually saw a, a big drop in the, the no low penetration. And what we, we find when we, we drill into sort of the no low data here in Australia as well is that um, we're seeing sort of really strong loyal consumers. So the people who are looking to moderate and they're moderating through no alcohol, right? Abstaining, finding products that are zero alcohol. So there's definitely a space for that. But then we're also seeing this big portion of rejectors and it's across a, a bunch of other markets as well. I think it was even more significant in New Zealand actually, where there's a huge percentage of them actually, and more so than the, the people are saying, we're gonna drink more frequently, was in New Zealand we saw there was a larger group of people saying, I'm going to drink less frequently. So people are looking, I think, for health and well-being through moderation. And moderation doesn't necessarily mean zero or abstaining, right? So I also look at the value perspective of NOLO. And sometimes I see it in that the, the price differential between you know, NOLO and alcoholics can be quite small. Um, and if you go to the spirit side of things, you know, maybe you're paying $50 a bottle for a, you know, a 700 mil spirits bottle of um, no alcohol, right? And so that is a big commitment for someone who is essentially, you know, drinking a, a non-alcoholic um, spirit. But, you know, the craft in it is supposed to be what the, the value is for. But would someone else get the same value from drinking a Diet Coke? Maybe, you know, so that, that's a big commitment for someone who's drinking a non-alcoholic non drink. And then the other side of alcohol, I think, is it's a big treat for people. And we saw that before. So people go, well, if I'm going to drink, it's a treat. And, you know, I'll just reduce the frequency of how much I drink. And that's the way to moderate rather than drinking something that's zero alcohol as well. So it's become a big segment and it's, it's definitely something that suppliers are talking about. I saw the Capital Guys also released a, a zero the other day. Um, I'll have to try it out. I'm actually a big fan of the Heaps Normal, um, you know, zero alcohol beer as well. I think they they taste great. Um, but whether that's going to be a real growth area in the future, who knows? But we're actually seeing kind of the opposite at the moment. We're in the on-premise. I'm taking putting that in a win column for me because I've had some very <laughs> vigorous debates. Again, I love the idea of it, but yeah. I just don't see... Again, uh, you, you can take the fat out of milk because of concerns around fat in your diet and still put milk in your tea. So it's still the same product. You can't take the alcohol out of beer or out of spirits and it's not the same product. It fulfills a different role entirely. Um, and yep. so, yeah, it, it's interesting. Your same, with our, same with our conversation on magnums, right? Like people see them as a treat. Like, yeah. And, um, you know, so people, you can do a lot of things to encourage people to to eat healthier. You can make them plant-based or you can reduce the sugar content of them. You can make them smaller, still pay the same price, you know, like things like that. But overall, people are eating ice cream because they love the treat. So like, I'm not going to Ben and Jerry's because I want to get a zero fat Ben and Jerry's. I want the full fat. <laughs> and I'll work out to feel that I've earned it. And people like that from, from a drinks perspective as well. And look, you know, I think moderation is a great thing from, from how people consume as well. I think, you know, Australia probably has had a lot of negative social issues from, from drinking in the past. Mm. And so, you know, I'm a big um, supporter of, of moderation as well. But I also do like the treat of alcohol for me as well. I, I love a beer. I'm a big fan of wine as well. So, um, you know, personally, I can see both sides. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, again, I, I think it's much more nuanced than people who just say people are abstaining, they're going to have low alcohol, zero alcohol. Very conscious of time, James. Now, we will yep. be able to, no, I, I don't think we can link to the Pulse, but we can link to the page where people can, you know, obviously it's an exchange. They give you their data. Um, so That's all but, I ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, We're it, a data business, so we need, need something in data in return, I think. <laughs> You've got mine, as I said, and uh, we, we get sent a lot of data reports and there's been a lot in this. Um, you know, you, you, you've given a lot of insights for free um, just in exchange for an email address. So we will link to your um, Great. 
page where people can get the uh, full pulse. But is there anything else that really stood out to you before we uh, finish up? No, no, it's been fantastic to have a, a chat to you, Matt. I think we we really got into some of the kind of things that we're seeing in the on-premise um, here in Australia. So you know, I'm really looking forward to hopefully what's a, a really successful sort of summer and uh, for our suppliers and clients as well and, and hopefully for all the brewers out there. And, you know, hopefully it continues. Um, but no, thank you so much for, for having me on today to, to be able to talk about it. Pleasure. Well, looking at your results, I think uh, weather, um, 17% said that they were going out less frequently than usual uh, because of the weather. Um, so hopefully uh, we're going to have a great summer weather-wise so people are out and uh, drinking. Well, yeah, it's been the wettest year so far in Sydney. So like, if we can get rid of that rain, maybe that'll, that'll do it for everyone. So yeah. Terrific. Well, James Phillips, thanks so much for your time and particularly for your insights. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can uh, share them with uh, a lot of the uh, craft brewing industry. My pleasure. Thanks. And that was James Phillips from CGA by Nielsen IQ. Since recording this conversation, CGA's October Consumer Pulse report has come out with broadly similar trends and you can download it via the link in the show notes or on the website. Interestingly, from this chat, no longer concerned about COVID-19 has grown significantly as has treating myself amongst the reasons cited for people going out more regularly, while economic fears were much more heavily driving those not going out. So there's some very, very interesting data uh, and we will definitely be looking to get James back on the podcast, uh, you know, maybe next quarter so we can better understand what we're seeing in broader terms. I'm keen to hear your thoughts on what you're seeing in the market, what's happening in your bar or tap room, or what are you seeing on retail? We have a lot of listeners with brewery tap rooms and also in the on-premise space, and we'd love to know what you are seeing. You can share your thoughts in our Facebook group. Just search for Radio Brews News and use the password Soapbox. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show, particularly for your business. If you'd like to have a little bit of that rallying effect for yourself, you can advertise on the show. If you're a listener, you can review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting service, and that does help other people with similar interests to find us. Finally, you can get in touch with us via producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts and ideas for the show. We'll be back on Friday morning with the Brews News Week podcast where we talk about all the beer news of the week. Hope you're having a great week yourselves. 